Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their stories of experience, strength, and hope. This podcast is my gift of service to Alcoholics Anonymous and strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. It's simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. Today's show features my good friend, Marsha G., who first got sober in 1990. But eight years into that sobriety, her interest and involvement in AA started to wane. She went to fewer and fewer meetings, becoming increasingly convinced that her real problem was with drugs, not alcohol. By the time she slipped after 12 years, and during the early years of that relapse, her experimentation with social drinking seemed to be working. She believed herself no longer an alcoholic. Seduced by alcohol, her misguided belief soon deteriorated as she began a tragic downward slide back into the bottle. With a child and husband and previous experience with AA, she had lots of reasons to get sober again, but it took a seven-year beating by the disease before she barely made it back to AA. Thoroughly devastated, she got a sponsor and started to work the program in earnest. As the years multiplied, Marcia stayed in the middle of the program, going to lots of meetings, continuing service work, and sponsoring many women from a treatment hospital that she herself had attended. Today, Marcia is once again sober 12 years, but this period of sobriety is infused into every facet of her life. Marcia's story of long-term sobriety, interrupted by a lengthy slip, should be particularly instructive to anyone who's ever inhabited the outer regions of the program where alcohol's seduction seems the greatest. That Marcia made it back to even tell the story is a worthy demonstration of a power greater than herself. That she has anchored her sobriety to such a strong AA program by continuously doing the work is a fine encouragement to anyone struggling to get to the center. This is the 32nd interview in the AA Recovery Interviews podcast, so take a deep breath, exhale, and enjoy the next 60 minutes listening to my friend and AA sister, Marsha G. Hi, my name is Marsha. I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. Hi, Marsha. And that's what everybody else in the room says to you, isn't it? <laughs> yes. It's always good to see you, It's Howard. great to see you, too, Marsha. You and I go back a long way. And we haven't seen each other in quite a while. I remember when we first met, though, years ago, you were coming back, I think, for your second and last sobriety day. Yes, I was. When was that? Uh, that was May 24th of uh, 2009 is my current sobriety date and my last sobriety date. And you know, I want to tell you this, Howard. Mm -hmm. I've tried to tell you, but you may not really understand the impact that you have had on my recovery. Mm -hmm. Because when I first got back here, I was, was a special kind of crazy when you've had time in recovery mm -hmm. and you go through a horrible relapse oh, yeah. that I'm lucky to have lived through, mm -hmm. and you come back again, it, it felt like you took me under your wing. 
and you shared your experience, strength, and hope on a very basic level that was easy for me to digest. Mm-hmm. And you were critical the first several years of me being back. Well, well really. thank you for thank you for that sentiment. In return, what I will say about you is I noticed from the first time I ever met you, you were like a sponge in that room. You were soaking it all <laughs> up. And when you came up to me afterwards on a few occasions and said, you know, what you said today really made a difference. I always think about, well, what was it that I said? But you never know who you're touching in meetings. And I know over the years, you've touched an awful lot of people with your story. And your story is an important story for people to hear because you had, how many years of sobriety did you have before you slipped? 12 years. Yeah. 12 years. Were they all in AA or how, how did they look? Well, actually, I got sober um, in CA, uh, but, you know, same uh, 12 steps. And I really identified as a as a cocaine addict, mm-hmm. but there was always alcohol involved. Sure. Too. And Cocaine Anonymous says it's total abstinence. Sure. So I just didn't equate alcohol as the worst part of my addictive personality. Mm-hmm. And and so I quit around that mm-hmm. and maintained total abstinence. Um, but what happened is that, you know, I got all the blessings, all the wonderful things came into my life, mm-hmm. and I stopped doing what got me sober to begin with. Mm-hmm. And it is not only cunning, baffling, and powerful, but it's seductive. Seductive, yeah. And so I actually, the beginning of the relapse happened because I was in a car wreck and was in chronic pain mm-hmm. and was given narcotics. Uh-huh. And I even told my doctors I was a recovering alcoholic, but I tell you, there wasn't a whole lot of recovery going on at that point. Because I was active in 12-step recovery to about eight years. I was married to a licensed chemical dependency counselor. Oh, wow. Okay. When we both relapsed, Mm -hmm. he had 17 years and I had 12. That's give or take because you're not consciously thinking, for me anyway, that, okay, here goes, I'm... I'm in relapse. Right. I guess you do when if if you take a drink, right. but when you're taking prescription pills, where is that line when I stopped taking them as uh, prescribed and started taking them by the handful? But I'm pretty clear that I had, I remember thinking I just celebrated 12 years of sobriety and I was sober at that point. Uh-huh. So at one point, it became, I don't remember consciously thinking I've got 13 years. So it was somewhere between 12 and 13 that the relapse started. Wow. And I actually didn't drink any alcohol for 15 years. Hmm. Uh, and I remember in that seductive relapse period thinking, well, I'm not drinking. Oh. I'm not drinking. It's insane. Yeah. The insanity had returned a long time before uh-huh. I ever started abusing pills hmm. because I believe that the insanity returns when I'm not treating my disease. Yeah. And it takes AA and the 12 steps in a relationship with God to treat the disease. Yeah, I get that. Well, I wanted to unpack that just a little bit. Usually there are certain things that people let up doing or actually stop doing on their way to a slip. Can you give me an idea what went first and what went next and how the dominoes fell before you took that drink? I can tell you, I just got chills on my arm because when I go back there, and I probably need to do it more often because um, it's seductive. That's Mm -hmm. the perfect word for it. It's such a seductive process. And it's like the frog in the water Mm -hmm. that, you know, the heat turns up slowly. I know I was about eight years sober. Mm -hmm. I had a toddler at home. I had a full-time job. My career was taking off. I I was experiencing all these wonderful benefits of 
recovery. Mm-hmm. And, and I was in a, a strong marriage mm-hmm. with another recovering person. And I think one thing is I wasn't using my sponsor. Mm-hmm. So that was probably the first thing that fell to the wayside was the sponsor. Mm-hmm. And then it was meetings. You know, I just was too busy to get to meetings. Mm-hmm. And he was going to meetings. So that was kind of enough for <laughs> okay. me. The insanity had already clearly returned. Vicarious meetings you were in, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and let me tell you, that happens to, I see that as, as, a, a person in the field, I watched him begin to think that his vocation was his treatment. And that's, you know, even if you're in the field and around it all day long, you still need to address your own program. Yeah. So we, we were both on uh, really shaky ground at that mm-hmm. point. And then both had these injuries mm. and mm-hmm. he he blew out both of his knees and had repeated surgeries mm-hmm. actually trying to replace the cartilage so we both were in situations where narcotics were required mm. now i i know that today if i got in a situation where i needed narcotics for something mm-hmm. it would have to be something pretty severe yeah, sure. <laughs> and i i think if you're in the middle of aa mm-hmm. That can be handled. Right. If your doctors know, your sponsor mm-hmm. knows, everybody around you knows mm-hmm. what's going mm-hmm. on, and it's for a short duration. But I was in a position at that point without being active in AA, mm-hmm. without a sponsor. That was way too dangerous. That was like playing Russian roulette, mm. that I either had no business taking narcotics or I had to reinvest myself in a program of recovery to get through that. And I didn't. At that point, you were not reaching out. Were people reaching in? I mean, how long did it take before your sponsor gave up on calling you or hearing from you? How long was it before you stopped hearing from people in the program who you were friends with? What, what did that look like? I stayed away. I, I started sliding away at about eight years. Uh-huh. I can tell you that I think from year nine to 10, I, I think I may have gone to one or two meetings. Mm-hmm. I know at 10 years, I think I went to pick up the chip. That's yeah. it. And I remember my 12-year chip, my husband picked up for mm-hmm. me. It took a four-year period of from year eight to year 12. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you what, it's real easy to disconnect from AA over that period of time. Mm-hmm. One other thing is that the crowd that I ran with in um, the 12-step program that I was in, I didn't have the one old timer I was close to mm-hmm. had had died, mm-hmm. died sober, but he had died. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't, I wasn't connected to a lot of long-term sobriety, oh, oh. which is important. Sure. I think that's important yeah. for yeah. us. And so I wasn't accountable to anybody uh-huh. in, in 12-step recovery. And I wonder if that was part of the process of relapse. Huh. There was a point I remember thinking, I am never going to drink again. I don't, I really don't need AA anymore. I'm just never going to drink mm. again. My husband's an LCDC. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to ever drink again. Yeah, he'll watch out for you. Yeah, or I'm a mother now. There's no way. Right. Not recognizing that to never drink again, there are things I have to do to position myself mm-hmm. to never drink again. And that's AA and the program and all the all, everything that's prescribed by the program. So that's starting at eight years, uh, eight years until 12 years when your husband brought home that chip. Were you sober enough to be able to claim that chip in honesty at 12 years or were you drinking and using during that period of time? No. 
No. So you were sober right up to the point at which you slipped. I was sober. I had very little recovery. Right. I had sobriety. Okay. I had I had abstained from drugs and alcohol up until about 12 years. The reason I ask that is because I have had some guests on the show who were actively still drinking while they were going to meetings. They met the membership requirement, of course. They had the desire to stop. They just couldn't. And then there are those who can define a hard date in time when they took the next drink when the relapse started. So once 12 years hit, what was the process of slipping looking like for you at that time? Were you heading down further or were you just at the end of the road? I think the insanity that had started very mildly at about eight years was where my priorities Mm -hmm. were. I was prioritizing my business life Mm -hmm. over any spiritual life. So Mm -hmm. when my spiritual life starts taking a backseat to other things, my connection with God is not even forefront in my mind. And so when that car wreck happened Mm -hmm. and my doctors knowing that I'm a sober alcoholic, getting that warning, Taking the narcotics wakes up the dragon or the whatever. It does. And I didn't have the tools within my reach to do what I needed to do to stay sober through, uh, through that whole process. So it became, it was just that much easier to just succumb to what was going on. You had gone from a, a dry alcoholic to becoming a narcotics addict? Yes. Did you fall into the mire of that particular addiction? And what what did that look like? Oh, yeah. And and that's what my relapse was for seven years. Mm. And so the first several years were pills. Mm. And the pills were from doctors who knew I was uh, in recovery. And then I was still in a lot of pain. And so I thought, I'm getting new doctors, mm. and I'm not telling them I'm recovered. They're they're under prescribing, oh. and possibly they were. And then I began getting doctors online, oh. and and it was happening to both of us. So there were I, I could tell you, relapse is very ugly. Relapse amongst two people that uh, uh, previously had a significant amount of sobriety is is a horrible thing to experience. Mm. So we were spending thousands of dollars every month with these pill mills. Mm. And mm. so that we struggled with that for probably two or three years. And we got off all of that. And then there was this distinct time, and it was in October of 2004, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. We'd gotten off the pills, and I remember sitting on the bed and looking at my husband and saying, you know, I think I'm going to have some champagne at New Year's. Mm. And, and I still had not drank. Mm. And he said, I don't think that's a good idea. And I said, you, you know what? I think I'm a drug addict. I don't think I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, okay. And I said, I, I believe that I, can, I just need to stay away from drugs. Sure. And, and he said, well, I don't know. And I didn't run out and drink. Uh-huh. I waited until New Year's. Uh-huh. And I think that was the, that was my mind or my alcoholism tricking me because I, I knew I probably was thinking, see, a real alcoholic would go out and get alcohol yeah, right and not, yeah. and not make a thoughtful decision like you're right, making. Right. And, New Year's came, New Year's Eve, I had a glass and a half of champagne and the sky did not fall in. Mm. So I thought, I'm not an alcoholic. Mm. And so I started drinking and I started drinking maybe a couple of times a month. Mm -hmm. And it was so seductive Mm. because I thought, I'm not an alcoholic. Mm. 
And I can remember one time in particular, I was visiting some friends in Jacksonville, Florida, mm-hmm. and we went out to dinner or something, and I ordered this beautiful martini Mm -hmm. and it was a (laughs) hypnotique martini and i don't even drink martinis but i drank this martini and then over the course of dinner Mm -hmm. and then i ordered a second Mm -hmm. one i i drank maybe half of it and i pushed it away and i said no that's that's i've had Mm -hmm. enough and i remember thinking in that moment I'm not an alcoholic. Mm. An alcoholic would not have done that. Mm -hmm. And it was so, again, seductive to Mm -hmm. me that it lulled me into thinking, must have been drugs all along. Mm. And so this actually, unbelievably, because I don't think this applies to a lot of alcoholics, this went on for about a year. Mm. I drank like what appeared to be a normal person. person. And then it started getting, you know, have a, a, a rough night one night mm-hmm. and just think, oh, wow, that was just, you know, that was just kind of an off night. And mm-hmm. it's a blur of how long it took. But I can tell mm-hmm. you that in that seven-year relapse, the first two years were pills. Then I started drinking kind of normally. And then the t- the last several mm-hmm. years of that relapse were uh, were horrible. The last two years in particular were excruciating. Mm-hmm. And we were both lucky to live through this. As a matter of fact, my son is lucky to have both of his parents alive. Mm. Um, we could, we could both be dead now. And I'm, it's a miracle to, that we both got sober at the same time. We'd split up and within three months he got sober and 10 days later I got sober, kind of not even independent of each other. Mm. And we, we both just celebrated 12 years of sobriety. 12 years of sobriety from from the alcohol and the drug from from everything. Yeah, I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I appreciate you going in, into such detail. It really paints a quite an incredible picture there, especially what you're saying about the seduction of the drink. I want to just quickly revisit what you said about the doctors. Did you have those expectations of your doctor? Did you think when he prescribed for you, knowing that you were an addict, that somehow he was uh, tacitly a Proving of you being able to take these drugs? No, I don't think so. I, what I really told myself at the time is that when I told them, because there was a neurologist and another doctor mm-hmm. and a pain management doctor, oh, that because I told them I was a recovering alcoholic, that they were under-prescribing oh, okay. me. And so I, I, I used that as a justification for getting new doctors and not telling them about my history. Okay. Um, I used it as a, as a justification to have multiple doctors that didn't know the other was prescribing oh, for me. Okay. That's because it, it moved into that area. Sure. I knew that this was my you choice. Yeah. And I knew my alcoholism just, um, it was delusional. Yeah. That I got to the point where I would have a conversation saying, I don't think I'm an alcoholic anymore. Mm. I mean, how can you spend 12 years sober, eight of them very active in AA, Mm -hmm. and then later on, and when you have empirical data that shows what an alcoholic you are, and you reflected on that, and then suddenly say, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. That's that's insanity. And that's real denial, too. So at 12 years, you picked up the drink. No, at 15 years, I picked up the drink. 12 years was the pills. 12 years was the pills. So you said we, we quit the pills. What was that process like? I mean, uh, people who are really addicted to say we just quit, 
there's more to it than that. What 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 did that look like? You know, there's such a physical aspect to to drug addiction mm-hmm. because your body becomes physically addicted sure. to it. You have to progress pretty far in alcoholism to be addicted to ethyl alcohol, right. and because that's what causes tremors and all oh, that. Yeah. I mean, DTs. Um, but I got myself to that point too. Mm. I think everybody's body around drug addiction reacts and adapts differently. For some reason, I didn't have real bad withdrawals to the drugs. Huh. So, because it would happen on a monthly basis, you t- you give prescriptions for a certain amount, yeah. you'd eat them by the handful, and you're going to run out. Right. And even with multiple doctors, you could, you've got to time those prescriptions. But my ex-husband experienced it very badly. So every time he ran out, he would get like, it was like the flu in, until our prescriptions came by FedEx. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so stopping the pills was not a difficult thing for That's me. Good. And and also because I've always been a binger, mm-hmm. uh, all or nothing. Right. I'm going to either drink everything and just keep drinking, or I'm going to stop for a period of time. Mm. It's staying stopped was probably the, the most difficult thing for me. Until the very end of the relapse, I was not a daily drinker. Mm. Maybe the last six months of the relapse, I was a daily drinker. You mentioned being a, a binger. When did that start for you? What What do you remember about your early life that might have pointed you to becoming a binger? Well, it... Uh was the first time I drank. Really? And this is this is something kind of funny, too. My sponsor, and I have the same sponsor since you and I met 12 Good, years ago, yeah. and she is a remarkable woman. Uh, she would share in meetings uh, that the first time she drank, she was 12 years old, and, and it was the same night she, she took drugs for the first time. And I remember thinking, because, you know, we are judgy alcoholics. Oh, sure. I remember thinking when I was early, early on thinking, God, she started at 12 years old. Wow. Because I, the first time I drank was in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And it took me a few years to go, wait a minute, that's 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize that 12-year-olds are in sixth grade. Yeah. So, yes, I can remember drinking Boone's Farm. Boone's Farm, yeah. And Yes, and passing out in the front yard of our house. So I'm sure my parents were very proud, and the neighbors were probably aghast. Um, but we were like preteens, and mm-hmm. somebody got a hold of this stuff, and everybody else was like taking a sip and got a little tipsy and Marsha's passed out because I was going to do more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's the pattern of my living in my disease when I'm in the disease. Mm So I'm in my 20s. It was a thing about stopping at Memorial Day and saying stopped until Labor Day. Hmm. So it was like an abstinence period. Mm -hmm. And I've always had a very strong will and strong willpower. Mm -hmm. But I knew what was going to happen on Labor Day. You know, I knew. And I had my drug dealers and the alcohol, everything lined up by end of July. Wow. Wow. (laughs) You know, there was no telling what was going to happen. Once again, I think the seduction of the disease. Like, nobody can call me an alcoholic because I stop for three months every year. So you started when you were, I guess, going into middle school. Was that a regular occurrence or was it an every now and then type thing? What did that look like? No, it was um, actually pretty infrequent. Uh I think that the the 12-year-old episode was um, illustrative of my addicted personality that I had to do all of it. I had to do more than anybody Mm -hmm. else and I had to take it to the extreme. Um, Then I think the rest of 
middle school was, you know, smoking pot occasionally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually I was kind of known as the girl that didn't smoke pot. Cause I, uh, I kind of stepped away from mm-hmm. that. But in high school, now I, I was very young when I graduated, I was 16. Mm-hmm. So I was always hanging out with people older, older than me. Mm-hmm. My, my best friend was when I was 15 was 18. Mm-hmm. So I, the crowd that I was hanging out with were much older. Mm-hmm. And in high school, it became a pretty regular thing, drinking and taking drugs on the weekend. Everybody was doing it, but um, I seemed to do it more. Hmm. I did seem to have a high tolerance for the amount that I could imbibe. Hmm. You know, that was thinking I was having fun. Hmm. And then my 20s were really a lot of drugs and alcohol, Mm -hmm. but alcohol was always like on the side. Hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, I, I drank alcohol so that I could use more cocaine. I get it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when I got sober the first time, it was 1990, mm-hmm. and um, I was 30 years old, mm-hmm. uh, I was a party girl. I was a party girl that hit a brick wall. Mm. Uh, I will share a story that is very, it's very profound to me, but I moved back from L.A. Mm-hmm. I'd lived there for five years, mm-hmm. and um I had been in town for, and it was the end of a really dysfunctional, toxic relationship. And I moved back here. I I mean, I just got into town. Mm -hmm. I dropped stuff off at my parents' house, and I went on a three-day binge. Mm. And at the end of the three days... You know, I, I, I just was in that horrible, horrible place of shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. And, and I had spent all of that time, all of the, from the time I was 12 until I was 30 years mm-hmm. old, doing everything I could to never have to assign myself the title of alcoholic. Hmm. I would play all sorts of tricks to, I am not going to be that. I had an older brother who was in recovery and didn't really like him too much. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I didn't want to be, I didn't yeah, want to be that. Yeah, I and that. so, um, I had a person out in LA, he was in the film industry right. and I had been running with him uh-huh. at the, before I moved uh-huh. back. And he was always, um, making fun of his ex-wife, uh-huh. uh, because she was in recovery. And, uh-huh. and he said, oh, yeah, she's baking cookies for those people down there at AA. And we'd go, oh, I remember sitting around with him drinking margaritas at this Mexican restaurant, at, you know, as we're getting drunk, sure. that the poor people in AA uh-huh. can't drink. Uh-huh. And so after that three-day binge, I'm sitting there and with all this guilt and all this remorse. Now, I didn't call my brother right. um, because that was too close. Sure. But I reached out and I called the modeling agency in L.A., Uh and I asked for Patricia. She was a model Uh there, and that was back in the days of voicemails. Uh No, this was an answer. It was an agency, answering service. And so I said, if um, please tell her that Marsha called and um, tell her that uh, that I need um, I need some help. I think that's what I said. Hmm. I I I could I could use her help. Mm -hmm. And about an hour later, my phone rings. Now, understand that this was um, back when you paid for long distance. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. And so she calls me from L.A. and she said, yeah, I'm looking for Marsha and I'm returning your call. And I said, I, uh, I used to run around with your ex-husband and I think I'm an alcoholic. And that was the first time in my life I had, I'm, huh. getting, I'm getting choked up saying this. It's the first time in my life I had ever said, wow. I'm an alcoholic. And by running around with your ex-husband, I actually used something a little cruder <laughs> because we were doing more than running around. And, <laughs> and I think that I was trying to set it up for her to say, who are you, you know, an offender? And 
she said, tell me what's going on. I am in, I'm at tears right now reliving this. Um, that's what she said. She said, tell me what's going on. She never, she had no idea who I was. And so it just started spilling out of me. And, um, we were on the phone for Uh probably an hour at least before she said, well, why don't you go to a meeting? And I'd say, no, 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 no. I no, I just want to talk here. I just want to talk. And I'll, uh-huh. that day, we were <laughs> probably on the phone um, off and on for about four hours. And I ended up that day, she called my brother. My brother set mm-hmm. an appointment for me to go down and get an assessment. Uh-huh. And um, I ended up going into treatment. Uh-huh. And that one uh, picked up a chip. And I stayed sober for wow. 12 years. That was the 12 years that you had before the seven-year slip. Yes, yes. Wow. So you had that kind of story at the beginning of your first period of sobriety there, but yet at eight years to 12 years, none of that history was sufficient to make you realize once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I I tell you, it was so much about self. I think I was buying into the success I was experiencing. That, you know, oh, I've got this. (laughs) Thank you for what you've done for me, AA, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to go because I'm busy. You know, I've got this. I'm very important and very busy. (laughs) And it was was ego. It started happening slowly over, um, you know, not needing a sponsor anymore, not really needing meetings. and, And you start detaching from this incredible gift that we have in AA. It's such a gift that we're given. It's so startling to me that I could lose sight of that. What happens is we take our eye off the ball, and then once we've taken our eye off the ball, we start taking our eye off other things, too. I get that. The seven years that you spent out there, it sounds like maybe they started out okay, but at what point did things start to deteriorate within that seven years? Well, it was the last two years were horrible. Uh, It was was not good before the last two years, but at the around the the last two-year mark, my father died, and... And I was very close to my father. And, Uh um, you know, I was not Mm -hmm. in any kind of shape to really process this tremendous loss. So he lived a wonderful, beautiful life. He died at 91. He was an incredible man. But I was so Mm -hmm. self-absorbed at that point. You would would have thought I was the the only person that's ever lost a parent. And uh, the way that I coped was to just pour lots of drugs and alcohol on it. And I think it was mm-hmm. it was inevitable that when I was um, already using drugs and alcohol, we'd gotten beyond that point where it looked normal, mm-hmm. uh, that something that right. was devastating was going to take me completely out. And so those last two years were um, lots of black eyes, um, lots of we lost everything and because yeah. we destroyed it. Now, when you say we, you're talking about yourself and your ex? Yes, we destroyed a almost 20-year marriage. And I guess the thing that I have the most um, regret about is that my son was born to two sober recovering sure. people. And so the first um, many yeah. years of his life, probably until about eight mm-hmm. years old, he was with recovering parents. And mm-hmm. then he slowly, he watched this slowly wow. become more and more insane. Uh-huh. And thankfully, he didn't experience a lot of 
things that I hear other others in our fellowship share stories about you know what what they went what their kids went through and so he didn't suffer that greatly but I know he saw his mother very loaded at times and yeah. not only seeing me that way but understanding that he had very stable parents and a stable relationship and that all stopped and so I, I think that it's almost huh. more difficult for a child to go from one to the other as opposed to living your whole life in that yeah. chaos. Yeah, and at eight years old, you also have in your mind that what's going wrong within the household or within the family yes. is somehow your fault. Yes. And was was he in a, was he the only child? Yes, he was. So it would be even easier for him to feel like, you know, why do my parents have to act that way? And you blame yourself. And why isn't it like it used to be? So from eight to 13, he was living through this relapse with you and your husband. At what point did you and your husband get divorced within that relapse? We separated three months before we both got sober. We separated in February, and then okay. in May, wow. we both got sober. And I didn't know... Huh. Well, I think he told me he was getting sober, and I didn't really believe him, and then I got sober. And and it's it's remarkable, because it's tough to have a period, you know, to have time, yeah. to have a, a significant amount of time, relapse mm -hmm. and get sober again. We see people struggle right. with this all the time. It's yeah. a it's a club you don't want to join. Oh, yeah. Um, and so the fact yeah. that both of us are sober again, both at 12 years sober, is pretty miraculous. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it is a miracle huh. that my son has both of his parents alive. And so what's ironic about that, though, is that it happened three months before you guys got sober. It seems like what would have, what would have happened if you had gotten sober three months before that, or gotten sober before you split up? Uh, well, I, here's here's the thing. I it's like the th saying we have about um, pickle can't go back to being a cucumber. Yeah. I mean, I think that when too much happens, you just can't go back. And um, while I am very mm -hmm. grateful for his. Um, recovery. I'm very grateful for my recovery. And, and we established a wonderful friendship mm -hmm. and supportive friendship of each other for years. Mm -hmm. This was whatever God wanted to have happen. You know, this was uh, what was supposed yeah, to happen, yeah. I believe. Yeah. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. You got sober again. What was it like coming back in? And how about some of the people and relationships that you had had previously? What did, it, what did those relationships look like when you got sober again and came back into AA? You mean my AA relationships? Yeah, your AA relationships. Okay. Well, this is interesting because I didn't have to deal with what a lot of people coming back deal with in seeing people that they knew before. I didn't, I, there, there were only a handful uh -huh. of people that I have run into over the years that knew me the first time around because 
the core of my recovery the first time was in a different fellowship. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah, I get it. So I would, and I have a pretty distinctive voice, but I can remember a couple of times in meetings that I would share and I'd see somebody's head whip around and look at me because they'd recognize the voice from a long time ago. Um, but I do want to point out that this sober birthday that I celebrated this past month um, was to me, mm-hmm. I know we all only have today. But um, this this milestone was 12 right. years, and I was 12 years sober yeah. once before. Just like when I celebrated huh. seven years this time, I had a seven-year relapse. So that seven years was yeah. very meaningful, that I was sober again for as long as the relapse yeah. happened. Um, so now I'm 12 years. Nice bookends, 12 years in the beginning and 12 years now. It's been 31 years since I got sober the first time. Minus, minus the, that seven-year, uh, what do you want to call that? That was seven it's years of hell. It was excruciating. But I will also tell you that had I not gone through that, and I'm so grateful that I that mm-hmm. God saw fit to for me to live through it, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have the recovery that I have today. I think that I'm just hard-headed enough. And I hear stories of others mm-hmm. who have, uh, and there's someone that we both know closely that goes to our oh, meeting. Yeah. She talks about having feared away from AA at about, I don't know, uh, 10 years and staying away for a number of years. But she never drank. And she got to a point of insanity where she thought, I got to go back to AA. And I'm like, why didn't I think of that? Why did I? Because my solution to the insanity was, well, I'm just going to have a drink around that. And and I've heard yeah. that from several people that, and I mm-hmm. hope the lessons that can be taken from these kinds of stories is how dangerous it is mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. get on the edge of the herd or step away from AA. This alcoholic right here needs to be planted inside AA. And um, for me to stay sober, and that's the goal, for God to keep mm-hmm. me sober, I need to be in the middle of AA. When you came back, would you say that you came back with the idea of getting yourself planted in the middle, or did you come back on the fringes and work your way into the middle? I was so desperate and so broken when I came back. Mm-hmm. You know, in 1990, when I made that phone call and said for the first time, I'm an alcoholic, I think I'm an alcoholic, right. I was in a bad place. Yeah. But in 2009, when I checked into hospital, I was so much further mm-hmm. down. And, and it was bad enough in 1990 really? to get sober, to ask for help. And it, but it got so yeah. much worse. I lived the progression of this disease. And it took me to a place. I, I was huh. experiencing DTs and blackouts. And um, it took me to a place that was so dark and alone and isolated that it's crushing to think of it now. It's crushing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, I was curious. I just want to make sure I have the sequence of things worked out here. Did you, when you hit that bottom, did you come right back into AA or did you go into inpatient treatment or outpatient treatment and then AA or concurrent with AA? What was the sequence of those events? On May 24th of 2009, I called my psychiatrist who um, is actually a treatment professional. And I said, I I think I need help. Okay. And I had not spent any time in those seven years Mm -hmm. 
thinking, gee, I got to get back to AA. You know what I thought? I thought I needed a divorce. I thought I needed. Uh, <laughs> I thought I needed. All, I needed all of y'all to leave me alone. Yeah. I thought I needed all this stuff. It, I I would not allow my mind to think that it was drugs or alcohol or anything that was ruining my life. I thought it was everybody else. Y'all are just okay. messing with me. I see. And yeah. I had this distinct moment of clarity. Yeah. yeah. And enough presence of mind to call him, and I said, I think I need help. And he was a, a physician uh-huh. at um, a hospital, and he got me checked in that day. But I will tell you that they have AA meetings uh-huh. there. Mm. That alumni group helped yeah, save my life, yeah. and I... Um, um, as soon as there was an AA meeting for me to attend, I attended that mm-hmm. meeting. I was only in the hospital for four days and then immediately started going to the yeah. club that you and I love so dearly. Yeah, it seems to me that there, there are a number of people from that class of yours that are still sober. And you guys did a lot of service work. Yes, yes. We did. For, for the first five years of this period of sobriety, I was at hospital um, for two meetings on every Friday, a meeting on Sunday, and two meetings on Mondays. And um, some of them were AA meetings. The other ones were called alumni meetings where we would go onto the unit and briefly introduce ourselves and what it is we're talking about. And it was really a question and answer. This was the detox unit. And Mm -hmm. some of these people had never been exposed to AA at all. And so, and that's where I met my sponsor was the first meeting, the first AA meeting that I went to while I was inpatient. Mm-hmm. Um, my sponsor was alumni that was coming back in. And I um, I actually told her, <laughs> I said, I need a sponsor. I, I, I need a sponsor, but I got to have somebody who's got a lot of time because I had a lot of time before, you know. And she said, <laughs> uh, oh, well, I've only uh-huh. got a year and a half. And I said, oh, okay, well, uh, give me your number anyway. <laughs> This is how full of myself I was. And so <laughs> the next day, I get it. Yeah. She shared this at my first sobriety birthday. I didn't remember this because the uh-huh. next day I called her and I said, um, Listen, uh, I prayed about it and I'm going to let you sponsor me. <laughs> <laughs> and so she shared about that at my first sobriety birthday. I went, now that sounds like me. <laughs> I'm sure it was quite a gift for her, though, Marsha. I mean, isn't it always? Well, but I'll tell you that, and she and I marvel at this many times, it's clear that this was God's hand was in putting us together. And uh, we have grown oh, yeah. together yeah. so much. And she has been such a guide for me. Mm-hmm. And um, recovery is such an amazing journey. And um, it's such a gift. It's it such really a gift. Is. And it gives me the tools. I will tell you this. I'm not even sure if you know this, Howard, but um, two years ago, my sister committed suicide. Yeah, I heard about that. And um, probably the most devastating thing that's ever happened in my life. We were only um, 18 months apart, mm. and um, we were very close. And there was... Uh, such mm. feelings of abandonment, betrayal, um, because we were supposed to grow old together. We were supposed to be, on, we would talk about being oh, on yeah. the porch in our rocking chairs together. You know, regardless of what happened to the men mm. in our lives, she and I were going to be together at the end. And so, mm-hmm. but because of AA uh-huh. and because of the tools that I have 
from AA and the people that I know in AA and how, mm-hmm. what I've been taught to do in, in when I'm in excruciating pain, I was able to walk through that fully mm-hmm. aware and to feel every one of those hmm. crushing feelings. Wow. And it's hard for me to say this, but actually grow from the experience. It's hard to say I grew from that experience, but, yeah. um, and Greg helped me through that we did a lot of work around it. Um, and had I not been yeah, yeah. fully invested in AA when this happened, um, I mm. would have drank myself to death. I, or, or, yeah, or, or taken enough pills yeah. to kill myself yeah. uh, accidentally. And I will yeah. also say that yeah. in my recovery, there was a point when I moved my son and I into my mother's home because she she had to have help. Mm-hmm. So for the last four years of yeah. her life, I was caring for her on a daily basis. She had a lot of dementia. She needed our help. And it huh. was the biggest uh. gift of my life, besides my sobriety, that I was able to do that for her. Wow. And that I was... Wow. Had I not been sober, I would have never done anything like that. I wouldn't have been able to be there for her. And that's that's another gift that this yeah. program has given me. Yeah, isn't it extraordinary, Marsha, that there are two situations that you just mentioned that would, at another period of our lives, be considered the perfect opportunity and the justifiable reason why we drank or used drugs. And instead, because of the program... Yeah. We turn those things into some of the greatest gifts we've ever been given. That, that to me, is nothing short of ast- astonishing that, that you were able to come through those. Yeah. On my own, I'm too self-absorbed and mm-hmm. self-obsessed to see anything but what about me? This is happening to me rather Mm -hmm. than um, the check I get on my perspective because of AA. During this period of time, so we're talking about something that happened at 10 years. We're talking about that four-year period of taking care of your mother. These are two incredible opportunities for growth and that sort of thing. In terms of passing that on to others, what has sponsoring other people or being of service in the program looked like for you during your 12-year tenure? Of those things that we do on a daily basis, I can't say one is more important than the other, because if I do that, then I'm going to pay more attention to the ones that I think are most important. And they all are equally important. Praying and meditating, going to meetings, Mm -hmm. reading the literature, reading the big book, uh, serving others. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, personal service, sponsoring is has been critical to my recovery. The first time I was sober, mm-hmm, I did service mm-hmm. on a group level. I didn't want to fool with the nonsense of being a sponsor. I never sponsored mm-hmm. anybody. This time, um, mm-hmm. sponsoring women hmm. uh, and having a sponsor has been uh, has been critical in, in my recovery. Because of mm-hmm. my association uh, in the alumni group, mm-hmm. I have, and I, this is not to boast or to exaggerate, but I would probably be asked by three women a week um, to Mm -hmm. sponsor them. And I would say yes to every one of them. So over a period of five years, I probably said yes to being a sponsor (laughs) 500 times easily. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And whether I, I probably only got phone calls, maybe let's say that first phone call, 300 women. And then more than one, more than one phone call, maybe, um, 
200, mm-hmm. something like that. It keeps dropping down, you know. Um, and then I think I've probably taken, um, I wish I'd written it down, but I've probably taken maybe 50 women through the steps. Uh, and I today I sponsor six women. Yeah. And I probably should position myself better to be available for newcomers because I think that's where some of our best growth comes. Um, but I did some step work with a sponsor the other day, a sponsor the yeah. other day, and I just, it just invigorates me. Yeah, it really is. It's invigorating. And the great thing about it is that when you've got good sponsees who you've taken through the steps and who you know are on good, sound footing, that whenever you do see those new people, go ahead. When some guy comes up to me or I see somebody new in the program, I will call over one of my sponsees that's in the same meeting I'm in and say, come over here, you guys. And I'll put them together and say and tell the guy who needs a sponsor to talk to my sponsee because I think it would be a good match. That keeps me from feeling bad that I can't sponsor every single man who asks me to sponsor them because, you know, I mean, the numbers you just used are astonishing. Uh, You know, of the 500, maybe 50. So we're talking about a 10 percent, which is good in our circles, isn't it? That's just the the ones that went through the steps. I have six women that I actively sponsor. I have other women that I have sponsored that mm-hmm. I see are are still around. I, I have women that I have sponsored that didn't stay sober oh, I when I was their sponsor, but then um, got their footing in another way. Because I think, I think a lot of, of this that we can't discount is the planting of the seeds. Yeah. You know, a, a person just might not be ready or might not be willing when I'm yeah. working with them. Yeah. And then they might go on and have experiences that then get them to a place of, of yeah. being willing enough to do whatever it takes. And, uh, yeah, and, I, and I'm and i grateful for anything that I may have contributed towards their path of recovery. Yeah, I get that. And, and you and I both know if you hang around here long enough, um, you see yeah. people die. We see people die. And I had right around the time that my sister, not long after yeah. my sister committed suicide, I, uh, a sponsee that I, um, a woman that I was sponsoring, um, died in a horrible car crash, alcohol related. And she, she was someone who had mm. seven years at one time and that had been out for many years and, um, came back and was really struggling oh, and, my. and asked me to be mm-hmm. her sponsor. And I said, I just think we're too close. I think we talked about it. We prayed about mm-hmm. it. I said, okay, sure. we'll, we'll give this a shot. And, uh, it wasn't long after that, that, um, that she was in this car wreck. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. Uh-huh. But, you know, I think we have to learn, and I know I had to learn this early on. I know in the first couple of years of sponsoring is I wanted them to do it just like me, because if you do it, you're going to, you know, this is how you stay. So, and and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's about, I've got yeah. to allow, so all I can do is share yeah. my experience. I am not that powerful. And uh, all I can do is share my experience and tell yeah. you what worked for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What they say in business is leading from behind, right? You know, trying to help them get to the right the right spot. So these women, it sounds to me, the six women that you're actively sponsoring right now, all the other women you've sponsored, those are terrific gifts of sobriety uh, in your life. Uh, and, of course, we talked about a couple of the, the, the really tough things that turned into gifts. Could you tell me about a couple things that were just uh, exceptional gifts that occurred uh, within your sobriety during this past 12 years? 
Well, I don't know if this would be like, um, because I don't look at recovery as if, gee, look, I got this because I'm sober, like I got a reward or something. But um, I will tell you that when I was, it was right after I celebrated one year sober, um, it was kind of a gift. It was, uh-huh. it was probably the first spiritual experience that I clearly identified as being spiritual. Um, my son was sick. He had like, um, mm-hmm. it seemed like the stomach flu. It had been going on for about three days. And so I called the doc, but it wasn't right. constant. He just was very lethargic and stuff. So I called the doctor, made an appointment for a Friday. And by Friday, he was feeling pretty bad. And I get him to the doctor and... Um, he was like, really, I, I had to help him into the doctor's office. We got in there, and as soon as we went into the exam room, I said, take a urine specimen, because I just, in case the doctor wants to do any tests, just take a urine specimen, and then he can go lay down. And so he gave a right. urine specimen. He laid down, and the doctor came in, and it was not our regular doctor, and he, and he said, um, what's going on? I said, well, he's been vomiting, but it's, you know, it's not like all the time. And he's just, and I said, and he's really, he's really, he's very thirsty. Uh-huh. And he looked at me and he said, is there any diabetes in your family? I said, no. And he said, right. what about his dad's family? I said, no. And uh, he said, that's just a Houston heat. It's just a, he's got stomach flu. And he starts writing me a prescription. And so mm-hmm. I will tell you that I've never been paranoid about diabetes. It's not one of those diseases that I think are going to get me. And so as Mm -hmm. he's walking out the door, handing me this prescription, I said, could you just check him for diabetes? Because he already has a specimen that, you know, just, and and the doctor said, okay, I'll I'll do that, but I Mm -hmm. I can assure you it's not diabetes. And he walked out of the room and um, he comes back in a about five minutes later, and he said, I need you to take him directly to the emergency room and don't stop anywhere. And uh, are you able to do that? Because if not, we'll call an ambulance. And I, I said, is it diabetes? And oh he God. said, um, I don't know, but I know his blood sugar is at a critical level. And so we went straight to the emergency room and... Um, wow. The, the treatment team came rushing around him and they wheeled him off. And I remember I looked up and I said, I was talking to God. I said, you know, I'm, I could end up very angry about this. And this feeling came over me. Just, I could feel it. This immediate thought of, uh-huh. thank God I'm sober. Thank God I'm sober because it was a Friday at noon. Huh. It would have been. Wow. God's hand was all over this. Uh-huh. Uh, first, that I had him leave the urine specimen. Second, that I mm-hmm. that I thought to mention the thirst. Um, that mm-hmm. I said to the doctor, uh, check him mm-hmm. for diabetes. Uh, because had I been drinking, I would have been more than happy to take that prescription drop him off at home, run mm-hmm. to Walgreens, grab a couple of bottles of wine and, and drop off that prescription. And with a diabetic, he could have gone mm. into severe diabetic crisis, which is really what he was in. He could have died. And so God, while it's not it was not a, a wonderful thing that my son had the onset of diabetes, but that's his been his own journey and his own path, and there's growth in that. But sure. the fact that God oh, yeah. had that happen yeah. when I had a year yeah, of sobriety yeah. so that I was present enough to to um, be able to handle this like a like a good mother would. Um, that's a that was a gift. 
Wow. And that was one wow. of the first times that I just, I, I, that was a uh, spiritual experience. Clearly, I, I felt God telling me, you're sober, so you can do this. Wow, that's really wonderful to, to have that kind of experience and be able to look back on it as what it really was, and that was a spiritual, uh, a spiritual experience is is amazing. So, is it juvenile diabetes, or what? What kind of diabetes is it? It's juvenile diabetes. So juvenile, he is so um, takes insulin every day. Yeah, he has a pump. He's like bionic, uh-huh. and uh, okay, yeah, he cool. he lives a completely normal life, and yeah. um, and it was a difficult process through the teen years. But once again, um, I was sober and was able to be of support to him. So I'm going to make a wild assumption that another gift of your sobriety was meeting your current husband. Uh, would you consider that uh, another one of those gifts of sobriety? And can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I was, I was wondering if I should go there too. Um, yes, I have a relationship of many years uh, and I have a, a wonderful partner and he is also... Um, in recovery and is about to celebrate 21 years of sobriety. Yeah. And so yeah. sometimes I hear people in the program say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to date somebody who's in the program. I find that a wonderful, wonderful bond that mm-hmm. we have the shared values of this program. Oh, and yeah. uh, I, I, I know that we both very much support each other's programs without mm-hmm. sticking our nose in each other's oh, yeah. program. But I think that, um, I can't imagine being in a relationship without having the program as the foundation. It's yeah. uh, and I was didn't date or anything the first five years of sobriety. Um, yeah. So it's been the last seven years that Kevin and I have been together, and um, the blessings around that are I have uh, we have his teenage twin sons live with us full time. And uh, That's so cool. I've been able to be a part of, of their upbringing. And um, we're, we actually, he has an older son who um, he and his girlfriend just had our first grandchild. And oh so gosh. I am a step grandmother. Wow. Yes. Yes. Wow. And we actually, we had his nephew live with us for several years. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. actually and his brother is living with us now. So we were, we're this huge family that is that it, the core of it is Kevin and my recovery is, yeah. is the, kind of the basis of, of, of the foundation of this family because we're living these 12, uh, steps and 12 principles, and uh, they can't help but get it by osmosis. That's really terrific. And and one of the things, because I've known Kevin a long time, and, uh, and I'll say this without hesitation, that had I had the opportunity to introduce you to somebody in the program, a man in the program, who I thought would be a really great guy for you to get to know better, Kevin would have been amongst the top two or three men that I knew. And I mean that seriously and sincerely because yeah. I've admired his program and and I know he's he's very dedicated to staying in the middle of the whole deal and I know he works hard and he every time I see him I'm I'm always glad to see him. So Well, and and, and you may forget but he and I have the shared background of he had I think 8 years and then relapsed. And right, he's got 21 right, right. years now. So yeah. we we both belong to that club that nobody wants to belong to. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And he, and that is one of the one of the huge gifts of sobriety for me is that partnership that I have. Yeah. 
So what you've managed to do in the last hour, Marcia, is lay out a lot of different things that somebody who's new in sobriety, listening to them, wondering, will I be able to stay sober if this or that terrible thing happened in my life? If I stay sober for X number of years, will the gifts keep coming or will, you know, will things just level out and become boring? You've painted such a beautiful picture of long-term sobriety after a period of real crisis uh, preceded by a period of, well, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And you've done it, you've done it brilliantly. And I, I can't thank you enough for, for laying it all out in that way. It's always fascinating to me to do these interviews because it gives me an opportunity to get to know the whole story of people. I mean, you and I, have, I don't know how many hundreds of meetings you and I have been in over the years, but you know, you get to know people maybe three to five minutes at a time and trying to put all the bits and pieces together, which is why I asked some of the questions about what was the sequence and what were the years and, you know, because it, it all gets jumbled up. But mm -hmm. in fact, it wasn't until just now when you mentioned about Kevin having that shared experience of having gone out and for a period of time that I recalled that 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 was his story. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a beautiful story. And, yeah. Uh, well, I tell you what, I just want to say add one thing here. I, I believe that God is the one that did it brilliantly, not me. The most that I have done is, is, um, and I haven't done it well, but get myself out of the way so God could do what he was supposed to do to begin with, that I kept exactly. fighting against. Exactly. Um, exactly. But I think, I, I would say that it's not even, and I think you'll, you've noticed that in, in my story, is that the mm -hmm. gifts do not look like gifts. So they're not like, like my son's diabetes, like my sister's suicide. Mm -hmm. Like the gift right. is that, um, that I can survive that without having to inebriate myself or yeah. anesthetize myself with drugs and alcohol. That no yeah. matter what happens in life, it's not, it's not about, um, avoiding the storms. It's about being mm -hmm. calm within the storm. Yeah, I love that. You, you've you've said that uh, a number of times over the years, and I just love that saying. The other thing that I was thinking while you were while you were saying that was that the real gift, and I I tell people who are going through difficult times, the real gift is in the future for you, and that gift is going to be when somebody somewhere hears about how you got through it, and that gives them just the right amount of hope for them to get through it, that's where that gift is. Because we in AA are kind of in the life-saving business. And your story today, my guess is that there will be people who listen to it and identify with it. There will be people who listen to it and say, gee, I, did, I never considered that. And there will be other people who listen to it and say, gee, I didn't know AA would be that interesting or fun or, or rewarding. <laughs> and and if, if any of those things happen, I'm a believer that if even just one person is helped by you sharing your story, and I guarantee you more than one will, it will have all been worthwhile. And God's made this whole process possible, just you and I knowing each other and being friends. I love you. You're a beautiful person. I, and, I love you too, Howard. And, and I, I, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for for drawing me out with thoughtful <laughs> questions. Thank you for everything that you've contributed to my own recovery, my own sobriety. I, I you're a jewel in my life. I so appreciate you. Thank you. It's been it's been a real gift to me to be able to be part of your life and to have your trust and friendship. And you have it. Thanks once again. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. 
Thanks to Marsha G. for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least three people you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast should be of help to more and more people. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. You can also visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.